The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. You found the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Here's the host, Bill Spohn. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where it's our goal to try to create a more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians. Create a better world, really. That's what we're trying to do. Making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. I found over the years that it's very difficult to gather information, just on a personal basis, for trying to learn more about building performance in HVAC. And I'm trying to do my part to change that, to help people connect, learn more about this field. That's one of the reasons why I started the Building HVAC Science Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Chris Dorsey. Presently, he's an instructor on the staff at the University of Montana, and he's also the founder of Habitat X. Now, if you're not sure what Habitat X is, you're going to learn something about that today. You can find other trade-oriented podcasts of the Blue Collar Roots Network, of which this podcast is part of, at bluecollarroots.com. What we're trying to do here is help transform and professionalize the trades by filling the skills gap through training and communication. And if you like what you heard today, and you've not yet subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science into the search bar of any one of the many podcast apps that are out there. You can also listen to this podcast in your browser at bluecollarroots.com forward slash building dash HVAC dash science. Okay, let's give a listen to Chris Dorsey, learn a couple things about Habitat X and Chris's view of the housing industry. Hello and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We're trying to connect the worlds of building science and HVAC together. And speaking of connections, we have a great connector, a person who connects people together, probably one of the most interesting guys in that field that I know. His name is Chris Dorsey. Welcome today, Chris. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome. So right now you hail from the great state of Montana. Is that correct? I do. I'm in my office here in Bozeman, Montana, in the lovely Gallatin Valley. I've been in Montana most of my adult life. I know you from a lot of different areas. You've worked as a trainer, an educator, curriculum developer, a reporter, a book author. So how does this all come together? Is there some kind of central theme to what you do? You know, Bill, I'm lucky to have had a career path, which is a surprisingly serial intention. One thing has led to another in ways which have actually been pretty effective, and I feel very lucky in that way. Early in my career, I actually worked in the woods cutting timber that was being used in the local housing industry. And soon after that, I was running a sawmill and cutting up timber and Then I started building houses, and it it wasn't long behind that that I started building really what were, I guess, high-performance houses, though it was back in the 70s, and we didn't really know what to call it. I spent years in the trenches running a private contracting firm, doing both new and retrofit construction. But, you know, it was early on that I recognized that though there's a lot of good work being done out there, that there's a a lot of tradespeople and builders who are trying their best to do a good job, that there was sometimes a dearth of information. And so I soon lapsed into the business of education, of doing traveling road shows, of working with contractors and other tradespeople, and developing uh, training curricula, which forced me to write books because there was nothing to work with. So I ended up writing my own curriculum and developing curricula. And 
I feel very fortunate to have had this path that's given me enough background, enough, especially boots on the ground background, to help me understand what we can possibly do with housing and who it's going to take and what kind of system it's going to take to make it happen and to do a very, very good job of it. In fact, I think some people call your publication, your book, Their Residential Energy, as the Bible of home performance from some aspects. So that's quite an honor to have that moniker attached to your publication there. Yeah, the intent there was to figure out what everybody knows and get it all in one place. And I can assure you there wasn't a lot of our own primary research when my partner, John Krieger, and I put that together. Mostly we were just standing on the shoulders of other really smart, really connected people. And so you continue that today. So one of the reasons why we're talking today is because you have an event that's coming up just a little bit over a month from now, and it's called Habitat X. Giving the listeners some background on what Habitat X is and what kind of mission are you trying to fulfill there? The Habitat X initiative was the latest and maybe the last biggest thing I get to work on, which is to gather up all of the smart people and knowledge we have about whatever you like to call it, sustainable housing, green building, energy efficient construction. Taking all this knowledge and putting it in one place because One thing we recognize from the get-go is that in the absence of a collaborative environment, the business of the trades does not actually work that well. We've all been exposed probably to places where there are construction jobs in which all the subs work in silos and don't communicate. And so you have the, the apocryphal stories about the plumbers showing up with their sawzalls and wrecking the work of the framers. And you could come up with a similar story with engineers that don't understand architects and builders that don't understand planning departments and tradespeople that don't even understand their employers. So what we're doing at Habitat X is providing a professional development platform where we're smart and connected and forward-looking people working in various aspects of the construction industry can get together with one another, gather and share their knowledge, and, and have the sum total of their collaboration be bigger and better than any one person or organization can do. And we've been pretty successful at it. It's a good run. We're having a good time. So Habitat X, how long has that been going on? I think this is uh, year seven. We're speaking right now in, in 2018. We've been doing it for like the seventh year. We've held an, an annual conference and we do a lot of work around the year to help build connections among pros. But the annual conference held every summer in some fabulous location in Montana is sort of the big single event. And we're happy to be able to have pulled it off year after year. Cool. HabitatX, is that .com or .org? How would someone find it? Sure. You can find more information at HabitatX.com. And we have a lot of pretty good resources there, and it does direct people to that national conference, but also to one another. And you also have, there's been journals created where you've kind of collected that information so people can take it away and reuse it and resource that information too. Is that correct? That's also there? I guess my publishing background is still uh, front and center. We always have media projects going on. We always have publications going on. And in the journal this year, as in many other years, there'll be a sort of a compilation of stories and information and technical collaboration and really visions for the future for the people involved in Habitat X. And so the, the journal gives us a place to express that. And it's often been produced in paper, but it's pretty digital too. So we can spread it around the internet pretty easily. Cool. So people that are listening now this year in 2018 and in, in May, when this launch of this podcast gets put out there, you'll be able to look to attend. And that's at the end of June. I think it's the 27th that starts, something like that. 
Yeah, this year we're doing June uh, 27, 8, 9 at Big Sky, Montana. We always have these discussions, Bill, as you and I have had about where's the next event going to be and should we spread them around the country and why Montana? And the simple answer is that, well, we have done some regional conferences, did a, a couple of them in San Francisco, did one in Kansas City a few years ago. But in the end, for this kind of annual event, the location really can be just about anywhere because what we do is essentially a place where people come and are in the room with one another for at least three days and there's some shoulder activities before and after. And it might be nice if it was by some bigger airline hub, but the truth is it's not that hard to get to Montana these days. Well, not really. <laughs> it's quite popular, especially in the summertime and in the wintertime, of course, but uh, summertime especially. So the kind of people that come together to collaborate there, what, what kind of groups of people are coming? What's the sort of the spectrum of attendees? It has evolved a lot over the years, and there's probably a whole sub-story in that, Bill. When we first started these conferences, we built it as a trainer's conference. And for a few years there, our intent really was to help those who are in the process of educating tradespeople do a better job, because we've noticed many of the trainers in the construction industry have been promoted out of the ranks. They don't come from education backgrounds. And so we had very good luck there just moving people forward to do a better job of passing on their knowledge. But we we have since then really evolved much more towards uh, sort of personal and professional development and building what has now become really a think tank and strategic planning session. And so the people that come for these kinds of events tend to be folks who are involved in some broad version of the construction or HVAC or, or home performance industry. They, they tend to be people who are running businesses, who are managing programs, who are educators, perhaps they're researchers. And it is one identifying characteristic of what we do that works quite well is that these days you would say it's kind of a horizontally integrated organization. There, there's people from all up and down and all across the spectrum among the various branches of the industry. And everybody has a single focus generally on producing decent housing and building high performance housing. And so there's people there that run the whole range of actual job descriptions and titles, but all with that end of helping to build some decent housing for everybody. And you've had like the uh, executive director of BPI and ResNet, Larry Zarker and Steve Baden, respectively there. I know they've attended Peter Trost with Energy Circle, who does marketing for the home performance industry. Susan Davison, who does done work with utility programs in California. I'm just kind of skimming off the top of names that I can remember off the top of my head, but there's a lot of different interesting people there, including practitioners. I knew one fellow uh, a couple of years ago, he drove out with his son from here in Western Pennsylvania, actually central Pennsylvania, drove all the way out to Montana to attend the event with his son because he felt it was so important. He does basically weatherization work in central PA, but really wanted to connect with what was happening here. Yeah, and almost without exclusion, the feedback we get from people that attend this event is that it was a profession changer for them. And so I think that the people who are working in the trenches can get plenty of juice out of this. And the people who are running the big budgets, they get something out of it too. And part of that is that sort of cross-collaboration that happens. Uh, there's room for everybody. I mean, I think there is really a sort of a ground zero story that really describes why Habitat X 
exists. And it's why this broad range of people can actually find value and return year after year. And that was that years ago, I was at a big, respected, well-attended home performance conference. And I was sitting in the back of the room as a presenter talked about ventilation and how that works. And as you and I know, you can dive in pretty deep. People have spent whole careers trying to understand and figure out how ventilation can and cannot work in residential structures. But I heard behind me that I guess murmuring going on. And it was people who were respectfully and quietly sort of questioning some of what the presenter had to say, and in some cases, just lending some context. And what we've all heard this, it's the version of, well, yes, but. And because the devil's in the details in this world, right? And finally, that discussion moved out to the hallway when the session was over. And the presenter looked around and said at the end of the session, any questions? And Nobody had any. And then I watched as about 10 or 15 people moved out to the hallway and the discussion went on for another hour. And it was relevant. It was potent. It was full of real case studies, real jobs. And the people walked away from the hallway discussion and had a better idea of what they wanted to do with ventilation, who to talk to to learn more about it, and what kind of materials and methods to use. And I looked at that or I thought, Oh my God, all the good stuff is happening in the back of the room and in the hall. And in defense of the presenter, he had plenty of good information, but it was about sort of the format and the personal communication that had to happen. And I realized that what we could use would be a conference, a strategic planning event where that kind of collaboration happens minute by minute over a period of days. And part of what makes that happen is that individuals have access to other professionals they wouldn't get otherwise. So I think that's the value of Habitat X is having that hallway discussion happen right there in the classroom, right there in the conference room. I think there's aspects of the conference where you kind of perform this, I call it magic, <laughs> where you extract information and actually adjust the agenda dynamically. I know it's certain parts of the agenda are left open and it's a totally unconference. If you've been to a lot of conferences before, you'll come back from this one thinking it's not the same thing at all. Well, we try to pass that type of thought process, that type of analysis and synergy of knowledge. We try to pass that method on to everybody else either. That's It's great to have a moderator who can do that, but we really hope that when people go away, they can do that too. It makes us all better collaborators. It makes us all better professionals. No secrets. Let's go back a little bit. And you talked about the 1970s high-performance home. What does that look like in contrast to today's, to the 20, almost 2020 high-performance home, <laughs> nearly 50 years later? Holy cow. Yeah, it's been 40 years, Bill. I was forced into that early high-performance housing by a couple of engineers who were building structures and knew that their contractors could do better than they had been. At the time, this was during the first energy crisis, and that version of performance was geared strictly on energy. It was about keeping this house from sucking up so much gas and electricity. And I was fortunate to be mentored by engineers at that time who had the ability to do that. Now, in this day and age, when I look back at that, I don't think I've signed any non-disclosure agreements on this, but when I look back at the housing, at the structures we were putting up then, I would say they were pretty good, but not perfect, all right? We didn't really have all the information we had right now. And like some practitioners, we got so focused on energy that we were ignoring some of the other aspects, which are now just front and center. I heard you say the other day that you try to follow this plan of CHE, this C-H-E, which is about comfort, 
health and energy, C-H-E. And I noted that, well, E is the third one on that list. We could also add safety and durability and resale value to that. At this day and age in 2018, we're really committed to look at all of those things. And yeah, did that 70s two by six wood frame type structure, is that a predecessor to what we're doing? Sure thing, but have we improved it? Oh boy, have we. And Bill, I'm the first to admit that along the way, some of us have made a few mistakes. I've actually gone back and serviced some of the early houses I built and it'd be a little bit embarrassing to have you walk through and see some of the things we did, but we learned and we moved forward and we're still doing that. So I have no illusion that we have it right at this point in history, but uh, by God, we have our feelers out and we're doing our best to fine tune our methods and materials. You know, I'm a tool guy. So what kind of tools were available and techniques were available to employ back in the seventies and eighties? And maybe this actually predates blower doors, doesn't it? So there was little diagnostic work that went on, and some listeners may recognize that that was the point of inflection. It didn't happen until the 80s and early 90s when we actually brought measurement science into the construction field. So measurement science at that time was much more of a laboratory thing. It was something you did in research institutions, something you learn about in college if you did that, but you didn't bring fancy analysis into a construction site. People would wonder why the heck you were doing that. It would not have fit. So we had simply eyes and ears and perceptions. It wasn't until the mid-80s that some of us actually hand-built blower doors or found blower doors to test the shell. So we could learn, for example, that caulking doesn't do any good, doesn't actually seal up the house. And we could start looking for bypasses would be one good example. We had HVAC contractors who were showing up and using rule of thumb, which we didn't really know at the time was not good enough when it came to sizing combustion appliances and compressor-based equipment. So the science really didn't come to later. And when it did, it did give us a chance then to look back and see it, what we had done and analyze it and make improvements. And it has been a process of continual improvement ever since. Excellent. I mean, the eyes and the ears can take you a very long way, of course, and they're still very important today to use your brain, your eyes, your ears, your five senses but, but then to add to that, diagnostic information is very important, as well as being properly trained with that. What are some of the other programs? Is the main focus of your work Habitat X? Are you doing any other related activities or side projects? Well, I'm fortunate these days to have a seat at the uh, Montana State University in Bozeman. I work for the Extension Service there, leading their building science initiatives. And in that capacity, we support mostly private industry. We are the community facing side of the university system. And so I'm working there on some curriculum development projects. I'm actually doing some in the classroom training, which is fun to get back to. And I'm helping maintain a really pretty strong and pretty effective training center, the Montana Weatherization Training Center, where we have people from all over the country come get a little bit smarter about what they're doing. So that's been an interesting project. And so between that work at the university and Habitat X, my plate is quite full. You've also been involved in some of the health-related aspects. We talked about this, Che. By the way, we're not going to pick up your extra durability, resale value, and safety because the acronym would turn to CHURDS, and that kind of sounds nasty. So we'll step away from that. <laughs> Taking it over to the health aspect, some of the things that I think have come out of the recent Habitat X conferences and just overall, what about the healthy environment? 
We surely can't ignore it. The whole intention of building structures is so people have places to live. And so if those humans aren't happy and healthy in the structure, then all is lost. So we have no choice but to really develop a type of housing which is human-centric. It really cannot be any other way. And we do know that indoor environments can be tricky. And guys like you and me have fought for years this idea of, for example, when it comes to air sealing, people saying, well, you need to build a house tight, but not too tight, right? Whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And so there is that instinct there, and there has been for a generation now that says that, well, if we have environmental problems or health problems or indoor air quality problems in a house, it's because of that darn efficient construction. And so I take it like this, that back in the old days in the houses that our grandparents were lived in and when fuel was so cheap, you almost didn't even have to meter it. It didn't matter if you had a great big drafty house and the wind blew through there and grabbed the pollutants and swept them out of the house too. But that was really no way to live with frost on the windows and mold on the walls. And as we go forward and build fully modern homes, we have no choice but to manage that indoor air quality. And to say that any problems with indoor air quality are the fault of the tightness of the house is silly. It's like saying you would, if you built a car and as you sealed up the car, it became too hot in the summer. So what you wanted to have is bad gaskets on your car doors. It's like, well, no, we just install air conditioning. So it's a case where we have the technical fixes in hand and it's just a question of dialing in what those are. There's an asthma epidemic worldwide and most of the developed world, especially where we have fully modern houses. Are the homes to account for that asthma epidemic? It's becoming increasingly likely that that is the case, for example. Can we address and deal with that? Absolutely. But it is not going to be easy because when I think of the work we did in the 70s where we were engineering just for energy, for example, that was actually kind of bonehead simple. We were just talking about conductance and radiant energy and air leakage and efficiency of equipment. And well, gosh, that's about it. I look back now and I think how simple that would be. Because when you take something as complex as a human organism and put them in the house, and then try to adjust and dial in the construction in order to meet the needs of that living, breathing human, it becomes much more complicated. So we are really at the infancy of this nexus of home health and home performance. We know they're connected, but we have not quite solved the problem of, frankly, what to do about it. There have been attempts out there to build a cadre of trained technicians who can evaluate homes. So that's met with some success. That'll be an important part of it. But is having technicians taking measurements, is that the solution? Well, not nearly. Any more than having an electrician with an ohm meter is the solution to people needing lights to read at night. And so there's many pieces of this. And we're, a lot of us are looking very, very closely at the academic and research institutions right now. They're going to be giving us some marching orders. Unfortunately, they're going to be a little bit hard to interpret for home professionals because when we look at, for example, like the prevalence of mold and mildew or other pathogens in the home, it's easy to say they shouldn't be there. Hard to figure out exactly how to keep them out of the house or move them out of the house or protect the humans from them. I think we probably have no bigger reason to be in the high-performance housing industry right now than to protect human health. Because again, if we don't protect human health, it's almost like nothing else really matters. We have our work cut out for us. Everybody in the Habitat X network is aware of it or working on it. I don't have a lot of answers yet. 
but you're putting yourself out there to try to collect the answers, to bring the collaboration together and exercise your network. We haven't talked a lot about this on my podcast yet, but I'm actually in the process of building a possibly passive house. And I say possibly passive because I'm not quite sure that it will be. We've looked at different aspects. My wife and I have looked at different aspects of this. And our priority or our loading order, if you will, is comfort, health, and then energy. So we do want to be responsible about our use of energy. We definitely want a healthy environment, but we also are looking for comfort. If we're going to put out that much towards new construction, it should be comfortable. I heard an interesting podcast the other day. Robert Bean does one called the Edifice Complex. And in that discussion, they were talking about the unused areas of homes in the summertime and the wintertime, just the rooms and the spaces you really don't want to go into. And if you think of the square footage of construction that was put into, and even or the rental cost or the maintenance cost for that square foot that you're not using, that's a lost cost. It changed my point of view a little bit. And I think we talked about this the other day, didn't we, Chris? You know, we did, Bill, and I think your project will be very, very interesting because it is abundantly clear to me that it is hard to walk the talk in this business. And a bunch of us are highly guilty of propping up ideas which may not actually be that workable when you get to a construction site. The construction business is very, very difficult. A lot of people complain about the conservatism of builders. They don't want to change. We can't get them to follow our programs, for example. But the truth is, if you're a builder, what you want to do is send your crews out and have them do this week what they did last week without getting sued. <laughs> and so when we stick funny new ideas in front of them, they're terrified and I don't blame them. And so we have some realities of the construction industry that we have to recognize. There's also things like what materials are actually available in your local lumber yards. You can't order everything from Canada and Europe. What are our tradespeople actually familiar with doing and how much can we be expect them to get retrained in order to do something new? How do you actually assemble these buildings? Do you have stuff that's so complicated that in fact that one minute failure turns into a system-wide failure? And is that acceptable? Or did the old systems have enough redundancy? It didn't matter so much. And so we can't build things which are too delicate, too fragile, too difficult. You can't build things that take too long because of weather and finance. And you can't build things that are too expensive because in the end, most of us don't have that much money to build a house. So, Bill, I for one am going to be watching closely as you and others get your houses propped up to see what you do. I'm going to ask your permission to fold your results into a new initiative we've just launched at Habitat X. And in that initiative, what we're going to be doing is we'll be looking at the work that's done by seasoned professionals as they build their own housing. We call it, this initiative, House and Home, The New Pattern Language. That gives a nod to the book by Christopher Alexander, which was published back in the 70s by he and other colleagues at the University of California, Berkeley, which identified a set of patterns that they believe help make usable, comfortable houses that are appropriate for the humans who live there, who can actually improve the quality of people's lives. I think it's time for a reboot of that book, and that's what we're going to be doing as we look and see, okay, in, in 2018 through 2020, this is probably a two-year project, what do guys in the know actually do when they go to build something? And we're turning that into a new pattern language, and I'll be watching carefully to see what you come up with. Fascinating. Yes. And so I talked a little bit about the passive house. What's your take on passive house? Nobody's going to get mad at you, Chris, here. Tell us what you think. My take on Passive House is that it is an initiative which 
we are so ready for the Canadian, the American, the European versions all have a different flavor. There's some organizational conflict here and there over who does what and how it's done and who writes the standards. But in the end, what we have is work which is so important, which is so hopeful, and which is actually being moved from what I can only describe for the last 20 years as the research phase out into the actual construction phase. And that, for me, is a very, very hopeful thing. Now, is it possible for you or somebody else to actually build a certified passive house? I guess we'll wait and see. I noticed you put the word possibly into the name of your passive house. But the beauty of what the Passive House organizations are doing is they are not speaking simply about principles and ideas that, yeah, yeah, you need air sealing and then you need to have a ventilation system and you need high R value and you need decent windows, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those are specifications and that's important. But what they're also doing is working hard to train the tradesmen. I mean, there's a ton of Passive House tradesperson training going on in the country right now. And there's no reason that those tradesmen and uh, their employers and building contractors and architects and designers and engineers can't cherry pick what is learned from the Passive House research projects. And so if one can build a house that uses 20% of what the Passive House experts know, then I think you've got to win. I'm of the mode that we have to take whatever progress we can make. And I really do believe, Bill, that when it comes to the construction industry, that I don't think there's actually room, nor will it work, to have some brand new types of tradesmen sort of injected into the industry. And I think the idea of a third-party consultant that comes in and tells builders what to do ain't going to work. I really think if you want to see how things are being built and actually affect change, you drive to any small town in America and then look and see at six or seven o'clock in the morning, where are the pickup trucks parked? Because those men and women are having breakfast and coffee together, and they're the ones that are going to work together throughout the day in building the next generation of housing. And I think that to whatever extent we can get passive house standards and other high performance housing standards integrated into the existing set of trades, the more luck we're going to have. And so can you expect the average ABC construction company to start next year and build some passive houses? I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I've seen some that have tried it cold turkey and the learning curve is too steep, but they get some education and head that direction. Absolutely. And so I have a lot of hope for Passive House because I believe it is a research level initiative over 40 years old now, which is finally getting moved out into the general construction trades. And I applaud that. I've heard about it for quite a while. And as I have this personal connection to almost a need to know, I've seen it as being a huge influencer. And like you said, there's um, passive house training. There's actually that happening here in Pennsylvania. I know the guy that was sent to Austria to learn at the Passive House Institute to be able to train the tradespeople. It's starting to get personal, if you will. And I'm actually thinking that might be the title of one of my future podcasts to talk about sort of how building performance has gotten personal for me. One of the other aspects is there's the field-built homes, and then there's factory-built construction, factory-built homes. What's your take on that? Have you worked in that area, or is there anything going on at Bozeman to relate to that? The closest most of us have come to factory-built houses are the things we call mobile homes or manufactured homes. I don't think it's a real good analog for the future, though, because those are really designed to be the least expensive houses out there. But what it did show us was it, it is possible to take components and assemble them inside a warehouse, move them out to the field, and, and create housing. And 
Is there advantage to that? Oh, heck yes, because the one trouble we have with site-built housing is that essentially you got men and women that pull up and park their trucks in the dirt and work out in the weather and are subject to day length and temperature and moisture and thieving, and it is extremely difficult to build site-built houses. Could we improve that with manufactured housing? Absolutely. And there have been a couple of attempts over the years. I can think of a few of them. There was an organization called Buffalo Homes here in Butte, Montana back in the 80s, which I looked at that and I thought, man, oh man, that is going to go someplace. But they never really could find the economic model. There's another organization, actually a uh, Habitat extra by the name of Duke Elliott, based out of Bozeman here, that put together a design he called Yes House. He and his German partner designed what was essentially a passive house that was built in wall-sized sections and moved to the site. And could they make a go of it? No, they didn't. And so it's been a hard nut to crack. I would say that I am hopeful for the concept of manufactured housing. But I've yet to see a version that I'm convinced is really going to work. One beauty of manufactured housing, and I think and you'll understand this, Bill, as a technologist, is that you can get reproducible results, right? That's what scientists always want. When you measure a thing, if you can't measure it twice and have it the same, then you're not actually taking a real measurement. And the trouble we have with site-built housing, one problem we have throughout the entire industry is that when you write a standard, whether it's a Passive House standard or an Energy Star standard or a building code, and then you try to promulgate it widely, you run into problems because every house is different because you have site, soils, weather, local traditions, local supply chains. And so every one of these houses comes out a little bit differently. And is that a problem for building scientists? Oh, yeah, because we don't have a set of fixes that will solve a problem when it's located in different places, right? I would love to think if we had a manufactured house that, you know, if you had a problem with your house, you could get on the phone and talk to a technician back at the factory or wherever that is and say, hey, my crawl space is 68% humidity. The, the temperature is 72. We got this kind of vapor pressure. We have this kind of heat conductance going on. We see this kind of radiant energy coming off the walls. Here's what the CO2 and the oxygen and the CO and the nitrous oxides all look like. What's the problem? And you sure are not going to get that in site-built housing, right? Which you have to have to, when you get problem houses, you end up with what I call like the forensic audit, right? My friend Rick Chitwood on California is famous for doing a complicated audit for which most people probably have to charge $1,000 or $1,500. And sometimes, do you need an audit like that? Oh, heck yes. But you shouldn't have to do it all the time to fix simple problems. Manufactured housing could help us get there. There's actually a group here in our area in Western Pennsylvania called EcoCraft Homes. And we got a chance to tour in a city neighborhood. They put up, I would call them passive houses, but they're modular or factory built homes that were very airtight, very low load, like a 30,000 BTU furnace for, for like a 1,200 square foot in Pennsylvania climate. So very interesting. And if people there care to look at the website, it'll kind of stimulate your thinking. So people are actually starting to walk this path that Chris is speaking about. And the other interesting aspect is, and I, I really got to do this, there's supposedly like four or five or six manufacturers all in the same area of Northwestern Pennsylvania that are building factory built homes. And these are not mobile homes. These are actually factory-built homes. They're building home sections. And some builders are seeing this as a means to lower cost and improve quality, even without considering the J. But that's probably going to come as a result, too. So this is very interesting. I think there's a number of different vectors pointing this industry forward. 
Well, it could be, Bill, that right there is perhaps a good Habitat X initiative. Uh, in fact, maybe you should bring it up at this year's Summer National Conference. I would like to get some other minds working on this problem and sort of collate our resources and make sure we have every possible opportunity to be successful with this in the future. Definitely. Going back to the new pattern language, we discussed it last week in our phone call, and it's come up a couple times here. What sort of the nuggets that you get from that publication? I'm still waiting to get my hands on the book, and it's not your fault, but you were kind enough to send me a copy. But what are some of the nuggets that you gained from that publication, you can recall? An interesting part about the work that Alexander and his colleagues put together was that it really recognizes real human needs and requirements in a home. And I think about the comment you made about a, another practitioner saying, gee, if the space is wasted, then that space you paid for or you're renting that you don't need. And when I think of guys like us, would we'd pull out an 80% furnace in a heartbeat and trade it for a 90% furnace to get that kind of gain. Why wouldn't we build a house that was 10% more efficient by being 10% smaller, but working just as well? Part of what Alexander does is he divides out the question of housing into bite-sized nuggets. They're like three-page chapters, and there'll be things like the home office. And they'll point out that everybody needs a home office of some kind. And if you have mail, which is laying on the kitchen counter every day, so you can't cook dinner, then that's a sure sign that you need a home office someplace else. There needs to be some place to catch the mail. There needs to be some place to catch the homework, for example. And it sort of recognizes the flow of paper through a house. And if you get it right, you can do it in a smaller space. And after all, small is high performance. They'll look at something like the lowly mudroom. And of course, I live up in Montana where the mudroom is a thing because we have mud season here, but also because we have skis and snowshoes and bicycles and camping gear. And it turns out groceries and tricycles and all the, I guess you'd think of as debris of human life. But if you build a house that does not have that type of space, that version of a mudroom, then it's all going to get dumped someplace else. And is that kind of stuff full of contaminants, for example? Well, heck yes. If it turns out you have a tradesman in the house and you have a guy that's working in a welding shop and he comes in and dumps his clothes in the bedroom every night, that may not be healthy. It may be bringing and contaminants into the house. So what Alexander will do is point out the human need and way of using a building, but then also come up with a two to three sentence tenant or a, a guideline for how to make that happen. So he'll say something along the lines of, be sure occupants have a place to dump all the random dirty things that they bring into the house every day. Or over on the performance side, there's a discussion in there about equipment, right? And they'll discuss a thing that we know, which is that people, most occupants, frankly, are a little estranged from the equipment in their house. They don't know what it is. They don't know where it is. I mean, I have friends that move into a house that couldn't actually find their furnace or water heater, right? And so Alexander will point out that when equipment is not understood or seen, then it tends to fall into disrepair. And so there'll be a, a guideline there which says, uh, make sure the mechanical equipment is out of the way as it should be for safety and maybe aesthetic reasons, but make sure it's also accessible to the occupants so they can monitor what's going on even if they don't have 
expertise. That fact reminds me of some of the German boilers that I've seen through my career experience with Testo. They would look like beautiful appliances, nicer than typical washers and dryers. I mean, it sort of looked like a counter, like a rice cooker it was, or a Keurig type of thing. But it was made and it had a very simple yet elegant interface to communicate to the occupant. So I think there's some sympathy or empathy for those kind of factors that we should look to our European colleagues for. Those examples I gave really are about the human interface. So I think that is important as we design houses. But I also have a keener interest in providing such a set of patterns or simple descriptions for how best to do things that are geared a little bit more towards the technical side too. And I think there can be simple guidance for framing. And I'm not talking about some 43-page manual to how to frame a wood frame house that no tradesperson is ever going to read. I'm talking about a set of simple nuggets that help framers understand how much their work actually affects the thermal conductance of a building, right? I'm thinking about things like helping HVAC contractors and plumbers and electricians all work together by having a simple guideline for what I call remodel-ready construction. Make sure that there's actually some chases built into the building which aren't used. There ought to be a chase which goes from the crawl space to the basement or the crawl space to the attic, which is big enough for some future system which we haven't actually invented yet. Maybe there's going to be a solar thermal system or a PV system or some version of network cables or we don't know what, but build the chases in. Seal them off, of course, so they don't become air bypasses. There need to be some simple guidelines there for what just makes rational discussion now that we know as much as we do. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that's very, very forward-looking of you to talk about that kind of thing. Where do you think this is all headed? You've stretched it out to 2020, but what's it going to look like in 2030, 2035? <laughs> let's, let's play with that for a bit. I actually am one who believes that we're living in a version of the golden age. And I say that because whatever's happening environmentally or economically or politically, I feel like a lot of that's background noise because especially here in North America, which is what I can speak to best, we really have plenty of opportunity out there, Bill. We have low unemployment. We have a surprising amount of wealth. A lot of homeowners tend to have some equity in their homes. And we have knowledge which is so much more accessible than it's ever been before. I think that at this stage, man, if we can't get it right, nobody else ever will be able to. I feel like as we prepare our culture for the future, as we look five or 10 or 100 generations down the road, I really feel like it's our duty to provide a set of operating guidelines for the housing of the world. Because industry is there to build things and to make money and to keep the resources flowing. And we have really, really strong industry in this country. But industry is not naturally guided by a long-term view. You just can't do that because you got bills to pay. And so I feel like it's the role of a lot of us, not that most of us don't actually work in industry also, but to dedicate a little bit of mind space, a little bit of our kind of time and budget towards developing a, a rational set of housing for the future, which actually can work, which actually meets human, environmental, and economic means. And that's why we call the organization Habitat X, right? When we founded this organization seven years ago, we were casting around for who we wanted to be and how we would define that. And we realized that, well, Habitat's a word that can mean two different things. Usually it's either talking about a living space or it's talking about things like cattail marshes and forests, talking about green habitats. 
And of course, in the end, we have to care about both of those because if we don't house the humans so they're happy and comfortable, then there's no point. But if we trash out the earth and making our housing, then we've failed also. What the X stands for is just the fact that when we work collaboratively, X can be multiplicative, right? And we end up with the power of people working together is greater than any one individual organization working solely. And so I just feel like we have an opportunity here with a lot of smart people as we design the housing of the future to multiply our efforts in a way that both creates decent human habitat, but also flatters and takes care of the natural habitat. I just don't think that should be that hard. That's a very beautiful, poetic closing thought, if you wish. I mean, we could wrap it up here. And I think if people want to hear more about these kind of things, you really need to connect with Habitat X and would encourage you to attend. I hope this podcast reaches a number of uh, receptive ears in the next few weeks and you make your plans to head out to Montana to Habitat X for 2018. So, Chris, any closing thoughts that you have? You know, there's not, Bill. I'm going to be glad to see you at this summer's conference. And every year we're here in Montana trying to create the future. And thanks for being a part of that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I always do one thing at the end of the podcast and I put, I call it the hot seat question. That's not really that bad. But if you could share with us your favorite book or your favorite quote, what would that be? Well, one of my favorite books actually is John Steinbeck's East of Eden. And it's a book that's so good, I've read it probably half a dozen times, and I refuse to see the movie <laughs> because Steinbeck has built such beautiful word pictures. And it's a story about families doing what families do, but attempting to build a decent family life for everybody. And in that book, there's a fellow by the name of Samuel Hamilton, and he's a family friend. And Hamilton is one of these guys is based in... Oh, in the Salinas Valley in 1920 or so. And like a lot of us has a shop that's bigger than his house. And whenever people come to visit, well, this is sort of dated a little bit. All the men folk at that time would go out to the shop and they would make things together and they would tell stories and they would learn from one another and they'd work with their hands because they are all tradesmen. And he was a favorite enough character for me. I actually named my eldest son Samuel in part in response to that. I was going to say, that's it. <laughs> but what I really valued about Samuel Hamilton in that book, East of Eden, was that he created such great respect for people that work with their hands. And so that respect for and, and sort of defense of the common tradespeople has been a thread which has run through my life for my entire career, really. And so as we talk about sustainable housing, we can't do anything without the men and women who load their tools up in trucks and vans and go out and do a hard job every single day. Part of my mission, in reference to that book, is to make sure they're supported and we come up with ideas that they can actually implement on the job. That's really pretty awesome, Chris. You've devoted your life to this. Again, if you want to connect with Habitat X, HabitatX.com. To learn more about the conference, please connect with Chris or connect back with us here at the Building HVAC Science Podcast or the Blue Collar Roots Network. Thanks again, Chris, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon and hopefully seeing some listeners out there attending too. Bill, thanks for hosting. Let's stay in touch. Definitely. Take care, man. Well, that was a very interesting episode. Chris talked a lot about things that were very personal to him and his personal involvement and endeavors really stemming from a kind of a life's goal with a respect for people that work in the trades. 
So anyone listening in the trades should get a good feeling from what Chris has to say and what Chris is actually trying to do to change the world in his own way. If you want to keep up with other things that I find interesting, you can follow the Building HVAC Science group on Facebook just by typing in Building HVAC Science into the Facebook search bar. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the Building HVAC Science podcast, please drop an email to me at bill underscore spohn, S-P-O-H-N, at bluecollarroots.com. We usually close with a quote for the day, but I think I'm just going to paraphrase here what Chris Dorsey spoke about, and that was the definition of Habitat X. Habitats, places where living creatures live and thrive, and the X, the multiplier. If you want to become part of this movement and help where people live, work, and become a multiplier, consider getting involved with Habitat X. As always, we thank you for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. And please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can just type in Building HVAC Science into the search bar of any popular podcast app. That will really help our ratings too by getting subscriptions out there. If you want to reach out and have any questions for us, you can always reach out at bill underscore spone at bluecollarroots.com. Again, thank you for listening today, and we look forward to having you back next time. <music>